Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2015. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching at tgc.org slash podcasts. So you can begin to see how God, through the inspired chronicler, is creating not only a reminder of God's faithfulness, but an expectation, oh, there's part of this that hasn't yet been fulfilled. And he's telling me that God is faithful, so I have reason to hope. And it kind of, it puts us, them, in a situation of, well, what, when, how? I'm Nancy Guthrie. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. Conversations with the very best Bible teachers of our day. In fact, they're the kind of conversations that people like me, people who love and study the Bible, and we study it not just to take it in, but we're preparing to give it back out. Mm. These are the conversations we wish we could have when we sit down to prepare to teach and lead discussions about God's Word. We want to talk to someone who's very knowledgeable about the scriptures, has been in the passage we're studying and can give us some good direction as we pursue and prepare to teach it. We're people who want to understand and own the big picture message and thrust of particular books in the Bible so that we are equipped to rightly, effectively, and creatively teach God's word. And we're talking today to Mike Bullmore about the book of Second Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Mike, thank you for being willing to sit My down and joy. talk to us about that. Oh, thank you, Nancy. Now, for 15 years, mm-hmm. you were an associate professor of homiletics mm-hmm. uh, or preaching and pastoral theology, as well as chairman of the practical theology department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So mm-hmm. you've done lots of teaching of teachers. A little bit, yeah. A little bit, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then in 1998, you were the founding pastor and led the launch of Crossway Community Church mm-hmm. in Bristol, Wisconsin, That's where right. you are still the senior pastor. That's right. Mm-hmm. And you spent three months this last year mm-hmm. teaching through a book that, honestly, I don't know if mm-hmm. I've ever set under a series of teaching of Second Chronicles. Mm, yeah. Yeah, in fact, it is uh, regularly kind of spoken of as one of the most neglected books in the Bible. And, and we can be a little afraid of it for that reason. But um, once you get into the book, you realize that there is just a treasure here and a wonderful, wonderfully engaging, wonderfully interesting book. I mean, the stories in Second Chronicles uh, are, are second to none. But there is richness here, uh, richness about God and richness about his ways with us. And so it's a book we should not avoid. It's a wonderful book. When we think about God speaking, mm-hmm. that the Bible is God speaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could never imagine saying to God, you know, there's some things you've said I'm not really interested yeah. in. Yeah. And yeah. yet uh, when we ignore mm-hmm. sections of the Bible, certain mm-hmm. types of literature that mm-hmm. we find challenging, certain mm-hmm. books of the Bible, in right. a sense that was, that's, what, that's what we're saying to him. You have spoken, but I don't really need to hear right. that. That's a scary right. thing to think about. It really is. And, I mean, it kind of boils down to a conviction that we need to have about all of our Bibles, and that, that's that God can be trusted to kind of address human being and you know, sometimes we gravitate towards, you know, a Proverbs or a James or something that seems immediately applicable to my life. 
Uh, and what we're doing, if, we, if that's all we read, is we're saying to God, you know, I'm, I'm not trusting you that this has to do with my life. And so there's a conviction underneath it that gets us into all of the Bible, all of this God says, is for you and it's for your good. Well, I look forward to hearing along the way how you have bridged that gap with Mm -hmm. your people as you've taught through that book Mm -hmm. because you're speaking week by week to people who there is a sense in which they say, what's the practical thing for me? Absolutely. Right. And to discover that even in these books that we're not even that familiar, that we wouldn't immediately go to. So here's a story that will help you with what you're dealing with today, how you have bridged that gap. So we look forward to hearing that as we go along. Mm -hmm. So the key to teaching the book of second Chronicles, I would think is setting the scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is not just any book of the Bible that you can just start it and go immediately to what's said in it without understanding that historical scene. And the thing is, for many of the people that most of us are teaching, that we simply don't have a good grasp of the right. storyline of right. the history right. of the Old Testament. Right. Right. And neither are we anxious necessarily to start out with a history lesson, but in a sense we have to. What mm. do we do right. as we prepare and then begin to teach through this through Second Chronicles right. to really prepare people with the history that they need to understand. Yeah. Well, I guess a couple of things come to mind. One is I don't know that I'd start in okay. Second Chronicles. It wouldn't be the first place that I'd go if I was starting to teach in a particular setting, whatever that setting is. Um, ideally, you would want to have some history out already. You'd want to have, for example, um, maybe have taught through Judges or Joshua or even earlier in the, in the Old Testament. But if that hasn't been the case, if you are, in fact assign Second Chronicles, you do need to spend some time kind of laying out a history. And in fact, I think there's two histories that you have to pay attention to. One is kind of the, the history of the Old Testament. How did we get here? So, you know, we walk through Genesis, the Exodus, you know, down into Egypt, back out of Egypt, into the Promised Land, the Judges, now into Kings. Yes during which time the prophets are speaking. And so to give people a little bit of a basic overview of the timeline, the other history that's really important that we have in our minds in, in teaching Second Chronicles is the time of the writing relative to the time of the events being described. This is really key because it tells you what this book is for. It's We can read this book and think, oh, it's it's primarily about the the time that is being written about. No, this was actually written roughly, our best guess is somewhere around 500 B.C. The events that are talked about are over an almost 500-year period prior to that. And so what you're asking is not just what's the history of what's being described, but what's the history into which this book is being spoken. What's that situation? So now all of a sudden we're, we're in the um, return of the people from exile. They're back in the land. That particular historical situation now is the, the one to which Second Chronicles is written. And so we need to know that what's going on then to help us understand what the purpose of this yes. book is. What is driving this writer at this point in the history right. to say what you need most to know mm-hmm. is what happened four or five hundred years ago? Excellent. And that is really going to help the teacher to stay on course in terms of what the purpose of this book is. It's not so much moral 
lessons that we pick up from the history being recounted. It's taking its cue more from what was the purpose of this writing into a specific situation. So let's cut to the chase right away. What's the purpose of Second Chronicles? Here you've got a group of people who've returned from exile. They're coming back into a situation. We can talk more about this later, but they're coming back into a situation that's marked by a degree of disappointment and opposition, and they're starting to wonder, is God still with us? He made all these promises to us. doesn't seem like it's happening. Right. So now the chronicler comes in and writes his book. This is a theological history, and he's speaking some theological truth, something about God to these people in that situation where their hope is being challenged, and he wants them to know something about their history that will help them know something about God in their situation. I think perhaps one thing that's perhaps stopped me at times from digging into Second Chronicles, and perhaps maybe does for other people, is there's a sense in which it's a it can seem like just a repeat of First and Second Kings, right? right, right. We did First and Second Kings, so yeah. isn't this the same history? So help us understand the difference between these two mm-hmm. books, so that if we think, well, we've covered the history right. in First and Second Kings, and I think this is speaking to exactly what you're talking about in His purpose. Certainly the purposes are different. Mm-hmm. What are the, what's the difference? Well, as you compare, when you read through First and Second Kings compared to First and Second Chronicles, you'll notice one very significant difference right away. First and Second Kings covers both the northern and the southern kingdom. So Israel, after Solomon, was divided into two parts. There was a division of the kingdom. The northern kingdom, typically referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom, typically spoken of as Judah. Kings, First and Second Kings, covers both of the histories of both of those parts of the divided kingdom. But when you come to Chronicles, it's almost exclusively, in fact, it is exclusively focused on the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kings occasionally show up, but only as characters in the drama of the, of the southern kings. And so just noticing that difference, same time period, but very different purpose, Here with the kings, the author is speaking, really highlighting the unfaithfulness of man, represented in both kingdoms. In Chronicles, the author is really highlighting the faithfulness of God, especially through the Davidic kingship. So it's just the southern kingdom, David's line that he's tracing, and showing the faithfulness of God. Because remember, this is being written to the exiles, Coming back, where were they from? Southern Kingdom. So they want to hear God's faithfulness in the particulars of their history. Let's step back. Let's not assume that everyone who's getting ready to teach this even grasps this big picture of this promise that was made to David. Because if that promise hadn't been made, this book wouldn't be there, right? right? Right. What was the promise that was made? Right. So this is one of the places where having all of the Bible helps us because we have a a more clear articulation of the promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God speaks to David. Um, Having now rejected Saul, he speaks a word of promise to David and he says, I'm going to establish your kingdom through you a son. And then he starts using this word forever multiple times, forever, forever, forever. In other words, God is making a promise to his people through a particular agency, the Davidic line, and and he is saying, I am going to establish David's king 
kingship, kingdom forever, and it will be for the good. It will be the means by which I care for and, and provide ultimately peace and righteousness for my people. That's the promise. And that, of course, gets picked up in First and Second Chronicles. And if we trace the story, what we see is in that southern kingdom, yes. there was pretty much all of the time a son, in a sense, a descendant of David yeah. on the throne yes. until Babylon shows up right. and kind of puts an end to that yes. and yeah. carries the people off to Babylon. So... Are those yeah. promises done with? I mean, did Babylon, the armies of Babylon, did right. they have the power to put an end right. to God's promises? Yeah. Or is that really is God really going to still come through on right. that? Right. Yeah. So I mean, you've just really highlighted the kind of the the angst of their situation. Uh, we've heard this, we know this, but it doesn't seem like. God's coming through on this. In fact, there is no king now. So why would the chronicler think that his recounting of the Davidic, God's preservation of the Davidic line, be encouraging to them? Well, one, it does point to God's faithfulness in history. It's like the chronicler is pointing to that and saying, you can draw a conclusion, God is a faithful God. And this promise has not yet been fulfilled. So you can begin to see how God, through the inspired chronicler, is creating not only a reminder of God's faithfulness, but an expectation, oh, there's part of this that hasn't yet been fulfilled. And he's telling me that God is faithful, so I have reason to hope. And it kind of, it puts us, them, in a situation of, well, what, when, how? And so, um, and we know now from our perspective, there is more to the story. Uh, a real pivotal mo moment mm. happened for me in trying to understand how to read and understand the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. When I heard Brian Chapel at one t point talking about the Old Testament and how and that what we see oftentimes is it's failure yes. over and over mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. and that it's intended to lead us to the point where we say, okay, well, they thought the answer was going to be kings, but the kings weren't good enough. We're right. going to need a better king. Right. 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 All these aspects. And yes, they were prophets, but they didn't listen to them. They didn't listen to God's word. We need a truer prophet. Right. The priests, God gave us priests. Yeah. The priests failed yeah. in leading God's people. We need a better priest. Right. And right. so as I think of Second Chronicles, and it's going to work its way through all mm -hmm. of these sons of David who right. are kings, and yet they're just inadequate. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting effect as you read Second Chronicles because you, with the people of Israel, are helped by the chronicler. He's a wonderful writer. You're, you're, you're put in this situation of every time a new king shows up thinking, is this the one? And some of them have such promise. You know, you, you, you look at the reforms of certain of these kings and you look at the character and the statements made by the chronicler about he followed God with all his heart. And you think, oh, finally, this is the one, this is the one. And yet repeatedly, you know, Israel has to bail another king out of jail. And, and it's a disappointment. And so you are left, especially at this repeated cycle, left longing. Is there one coming who will satisfy this longing? So it's almost a, it's a, it's a strange rhetorical strategy or, or writing strategy because it's purposefully reminding you of the disappointment so far. Mm. Yeah. But it makes it mean all the much more than when we open up the right. book of Matthew. All right. And we read right away <laughs> that Jesus 
was the son of David. Exactly. Yeah. And then it's like, ding, ding, ding. Yes. Here's the king that we longed for. Exactly. That's so much better than all of those failed kings over Judah. And, And when you read the Gospels, especially Matthew, you see that there was still this expectation. There's the... Is Still this the forgotten. son of David? Maybe they'd been reading Second Chronicles. Exactly, yeah. So it's, it's a wonderful thing when you come to the Gospels and all of a sudden now all that has been longed for is realized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't you begin to walk us through a little bit, um, mm-hmm. maybe in some big chunks because mm-hmm. we don't want to take up too much time. But the, what is it? The first eight or nine chapters focus on the first son right. of David, right. which is Solomon. Right. And... His story, this is one place where there's really a contrast between his story in 2 Kings and his story here. So what do we learn about Solomon in 2 Chronicles that Mm -hmm. really evidences the chronicler's purpose? Right. So if if, if you know a little bit about Solomon at all... You know that he, that his kingdom was grand. There was just this glorious kind of expansion of wealth and influence. And Solomon married a lot of wives. Um, and foreign influence, and it just it breaks my heart when I read it in Second Kings. Where you read first of all that he loved the Lord, and then you get a few chapters he right. loved many foreign women. Right. It just breaks your heart, right? And, and you see now the downward spiral of Solomon. So if you know that history at all, you open up Second Chronicles, and and you're kind of waiting for the shoe to yes. drop, and the shoe never drops. Yeah. In fact, interestingly, in First Chronicles, it's the same thing with David. The incident with Bathsheba is not never there. mentioned. In fact, she's not even talked about except for in one small reference in a genealogy. So you think, what? What's up with this? Why this whitewashing? So you get to Solomon. Same thing. No mention of the foreign wives. It's just all good and grand. Well, what is happening there? Again, it's this purpose of the chronicler to highlight the faithfulness of God to his promises. And so when God promised, it's not as if he's unaware of Solomon's failures. He's just doing selective writing for a purpose. Here's my purpose. Here's how I want to get it done. So this is what I'm going to talk about. I'm not lying. I'm just not including that. Because what I want to get done is to show how in the greatness and grandeur of Solomon's kingdom, this very specific promise is fulfilled. I will establish your kingdom. God says to Solomon, I will establish it. And my goodness, he does so, you know, in, in multiples. So there is that theme. I think that helps us understand why a rosy picture of Solomon. But we always have to remember one greater than Solomon. So again, as you're teaching, have in mind, you know, that Matthew 12 connection. Remember, one greater than Solomon is here. So even in the greatness of Solomon, something else is going to trump that. In the midst of talking about Solomon, a, a focus is on the incredible work Solomon did, yep. which was build the temple. Right. And when we think of Second Chronicles, we can hardly think of it without temple, mm-hmm. temple, temple, mm-hmm. all the way through this. In fact, if we think about the Bible, yeah. <laughs> we realize... Um, as teachers, if we're going to understand the Bible throughout, right. we have to grasp this theme of temple mm. that runs from literally mm-hmm. the first chapter 
to the last chapter of the Bible. Will you talk to us a little bit about the temple and then move into what the scene is in Chronicles, how it adds to our understanding of that? Yeah. So, I mean, the the whole theme, the whole theology of the temple is God with his people. God in his kindness, rep- recognizing we're frail um, and, and there is, an, there is a, a desire in us for some representation of God. We, we, he's spoken to us, but we're limited in our perception, our, our apprehension of God. And so he, in his kindness, says, I'm going to um, locate myself among you. Um, and so we have this elaborate description you know, of the, the tent of meeting, uh, which becomes the tabernacle, which becomes the temple, and in it the ark, and all of this representing the presence and the power of God among his people. In fact, there's something very interesting in Second Chronicles. So yes, the temple theme is huge in Second Chronicles. But if you, if you look at the very first verse of Second Chronicles... Um, one of the strategies for reading any literature, and it, and it certainly uh, is useful in reading biblical literature, is look at beginnings and endings. So the very first verse of Second Chronicles, Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him mm. and made him exceedingly great. Now, there's no reference to the temple at all, but and, and you wouldn't want to necessarily, just having read the first verse, you know, make too big of a deal of that. But then when you come to the very last verse, you know, in this wonderful section of, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. So the book starts and ends with a statement of God with his people, this withness of God of his people. Well, you know, if you've read that a few times, you notice that, and now all of a sudden you see the temple really carrying this theme. Now let's go and make one other move here. That was the events as they transpired. But now go back to your chronicler who's addressing the people and the returned exiles. The returned exiles and now this much smaller temple. What do we do with this? Well, God dwelt among his people with Solomon's temple. That's destroyed. But here's another temple. God's They've well, rebuilt it they've somewhat it. Right? under, under uh, Zerubbabel. Yes, and, and it too represents God with his people. Um, but there is yet, this is pointing, still pointing forward to something. Um, the temple too was a part of God's promise to David and Solomon. It wasn't just I'll establish your kingdom, but you will build a house for me. And so that demonstration of God's faithfulness and now this reminder, God dwells with his people. That's the key theme with, mm-hmm. with the temple. Carry it into the New Testament for us, because it doesn't stop in Second Chronicles. Of course. You know, you come now to the Gospels, I think, particularly John chapter 2, um, when Jesus speaks of himself as the temple. We, this, this temple now is obsolete. Um, and we know in John 1, he will take on flesh and tabernacle among us, dwell among us, with us is God, Emmanuel, God with us. So now the temple itself becomes obsolete, and Jesus makes all of these references, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it in three days. How can you do that? It took years to build this temple. No, I'm not talking about that temple. I'm talking about my body, which is representing God's presence and power among you. So, yeah. So, like you said, Nancy, start to finish, temple is huge. Even when we get into the epistles, the those writers yeah. recognize yeah. 
Yeah. The devil's not a thing of the past. It's not solely a thing of the future either. Right. Even now, yes. God is making you living stones, yes. building up a temple in which he's going to Place dwell. He dwells. Yeah. yeah. And then when we come to the last chapter, we read about the new heavens and the new earth, that yes. there is actually no temple there. Well, there is a temple, <laughs> but, but not it's in not, yeah. not in the same way. Yeah. We see all... That the whole Bible, right. including here in Second Chronicles, yeah. has been pointing toward. Yeah, because in then to the in Revelation, God is dwelling immediately. Yes. This is immediate dwelling. So with really, his I, I suppose we could say we have to understand the temple, what it's representing, because really the the heart of it is God dwelling with his people, yes. which we saw back there in Genesis 1 and 2. He was yeah. dwelling among his people. Yes. We saw it in the tabernacle in the temple, then we yes. see it when he comes in flesh to tabernacle yes. dwell among his people. Yes. And even now at Pentecost, yes. just as the fire comes down here in Second Chronicles, right? right? right. It comes down when God is going to dwell in the temple, when Solomon builds the temple. Then at Pentecost, we see yes. this fire yeah. come down yes. as he comes to dwell in us by the person of the Holy Spirit yeah. in yeah. our lives as, as believers yeah. and as the church. Wonderful. Yeah. So another thing that this does for us is it takes two other really big theme, themes of Second Chronicles, obvious themes. God, what is God like, and God's people. And it becomes the point of contact between those, the temple. So you've got God, you've got his people now, you've got God dwelling among his people, with his people. So another theme yes. to, to be mined in Second Chronicles. Yeah. I, I, I loved it, by the way, as I was listening through your sermons. Certainly you make some of these connections of mm-hmm. one greater than Solomon. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the most fascinating, I think you mentioned, was uh, when we get to, what is it? Uh, chapter nine, the, oh, the queen, queen of, of Sheba. Sheba. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and what does yeah. she bring? Oh, what yeah. does she bring to the king? Yeah. And certainly, I mean, when we study Solomon, we should be seeing over and over again, God is giving us a picture already of that one who's coming, who is going to be greater. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. This one whose kingdom under his kingdom, there is such great peace. Yes. And wealth, yes, and that the whole world streams to yes. to uh, take to see his greatness. Yes. I mean, what a picture Isn't of wonderful? our true king, yeah. the ultimate king, and mm. even there, the queen of Sheba. When you talked about the offerings that she brought, right? Yeah, what did she bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yeah. And, and you can read that by itself and think, okay, that would kind have been expected. You know, of course they bring that's what was there. And, and yet um, here's the Old Testament regularly seeding, purposefully seeding anticipation of a much greater story that we're going to read later. So you don't want to, you don't want to invest too, too much, much. And you in didn't, that. I noticed when, but you brought it up and you kind of get a, whoa. Yes. You got to pay attention. And you want, as you're teaching that, you want to at least point to that and say, make you think of anything, you know? So, yeah. Exactly. And it is a beautiful thing to think about then when people who are probably from the region where the Queen of Sheba was, mm-hmm. perhaps, mm-hmm. right? They came from the east and they're right. going to come and they're going right. to bring gold and frankincense exactly. and myrrh to the one who is greater than Solomon. Yes. And the thing that helps you feel more confident in making that connection is Jesus says, you know, in that same passage where he says one greater than Solomon, he, I don't know if it's the same passage anyway, I think it's in Matthew 12, where he says, you know, the queen of Sheba will rise on the last day. 
and um, she'll judge you for your lack of recognition of when I read those kind of things in the Bible and it's page after page what that does to me is strengthen my solid conviction that the Bible has one One divine author author. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because the Bible fits together I just think about all the attacks on the Bible people want to pick at the Bible's inconsistencies Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. This mm-hmm. book is too miraculous. Mm-hmm. The story fits mm-hmm. together too beautifully, right. too perfectly for right. there not to be one right. divine author. And we have the sweet privilege of teaching this and helping oh, people what see a privilege. that. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. So move us on from Solomon because mm-hmm. then we get his son Rehoboam yep. and it starts in perhaps rather than going through individual, all right. of the individuals, maybe you can give us some highlights for as, yeah. as we're teaching it, what are some of the places where we, mm-hmm. we've got to help people see that? Yeah, I mean, this kind of goes to how do you approach the book because you do have that big lump at the beginning, chapters 1 through 9, that's all about Solomon. And then from that point on, not necessarily one chapter per king, but a chapter or two per king, you have this serial Um, kind of treatment of king after king, all of the kings of Judah. And you do have kind of ups and downs. You've got those who did not follow the Lord. You have those who followed the Lord, but not with a whole heart. And then you have those who followed the Lord with a whole heart. And you have, you have, (laughs) oh, the stories in here, Nancy, are just, are just remarkable. The story of Micaiah, the prophet, standing against 700 prophets and refusing to cave in to the pressure of two kings and all of these prophets. And how does he do that? You have the story of, in chapters 22, 23 and there, you have uh, Jehoshabeth and Jehoiada, daughter of the dead king and priest who are now married, and they have rescued one of the surviving members, one of the little sons, of one of the kings that's that's been killed, and Athalia, you know, it just sounds it sounds <laughs> sounds like Maleficent. <laughs> she is the arch villain of the book, and she's trying to wipe out everybody so that she can have sole kind of rule. But Jehoshabeth and Jehoiada have secreted off this mm-hmm. this little king Joash. And what do you have there? You have a marvelous story of God's faithfulness in its own right, so right there, day-to-day faithfulness of God in the stuff of our lives, and at the same time, this overarching faithfulness of God to preserve the Davidic line. This is the only hope left, this little boy. And at the same time, you have another theme. Here is another vulnerable infant in the line of vulnerable infant after vulnerable infant upon whom the promise of God depends and who could so easily be done away with, and yet God preserves and Joash becomes this wonderful. Yeah, that really relates, doesn't it, to um, to Genesis three fifteen? Yes, this enmity. Yes, that's always going to be there right. between the seed of the serpent mm-hmm. and the seed of the woman. Yeah, and there's just—I mean, we've seen it throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Like you said, these vulnerable babies yeah. from you know Pharaoh who's at enmity with the Hebrew people and Moses, and then here here it is again. Yes. And then, of course, that just points forward and foreshadows the slaughter of the innocents with Jesus. There's going to be Herod. Exactly. And he's at enmity with the people of God that this 
this uh, potential uh, threatening rival. king, a rival king yeah. might might yeah. come up. Now, you mentioned something there that I think might be key as we're thinking about teaching through this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned some prophets. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, I mean, one thing about the Old Testament, I mean, this is such a basic thing. And, Mike, honestly, I'd be kind of embarrassed for you to know how recently I really grasped mm. how the prophetic books in the Old Testament in a sense, could be laid over these historical books, the way they blend mm-hmm. together. I mean, it's easy to think because the prophets come later right. in the Old Testament that that's all stuff that happened later. But in fact, um, they're so blended in mm-hmm. with here in Second Chronicles. What are some of the prophets who prophesied yeah. during this time that are that as we're teaching through the book, we may want to jump over right. to what some of those prophets prophesied because it's so mm. key to understanding um, or certainly adds to our understanding of what was going on Good. here. Yes. Yeah, that's, it, it is important to know. In fact, at some point, if you're teaching through this, you might want to help your people with maybe even some sort of visual representation yes. of the that parallel. Helps me to see it visually. Yes, the parallel timelines of the kings and the prophets. The ESV Study Bible has a good rendition good. of that. So point them to something like that and, and, and help them with that to see all during this Davidic kingship as it's unfolding over 400-some years, there's prophets coming. In fact, at some point in your preaching through Second Chronicles, just take them to Isaiah 1.1 and, and read that. And <laughs> in fact, let's just do that. Let's, Isaiah 1.1, and here's what we have. So, you know, let's say you've waited till two-thirds of the way through Second Chronicles. And then you read the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, there's our southern kingdom. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And, and you read that and you say, sound familiar? These are the kings we've been talking about the last three or four weeks or whatever your schedule has been. And so now... What that does is it helps them to see the historical relationship, but it also helps them to see, or at least to begin to explore, the spiritual condition in Judah during that time. Because you could now read Isaiah. You could read Isaiah at some point and and find out what are the issues that Isaiah is addressing during the kingship of those. And so it gives you a little bit of a, a more of a spiritual climate behind what's going on in Second Chronicles. And you could do the same thing with Hosea, same thing with Micah, same thing with Zephaniah. All of those were, were prophets uh, almost, almost exclusively to the southern kingdom. During that same time period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing that comes up in that regard with the prophets, and notice that these prophets, as you just read, it's giving us the time frame, who, the kings that were there. Yes. And mm-hmm. we might think that that's just a time stamp, but I think perhaps we don't – one of the things we don't understand in regards to prophets, we think about them speaking to the people. The prophets had a very distinct role in regard to the king. So, yes, that, that's very helpful because um, while there is a prophetic ministry to the people generally, the first, the first move is to the king. Assuming the first the king, audience, in yes, a sense. Exactly. Yes. Assuming the king will bear his responsibility to now lead the people according to the word of God from the prophet. And so there is this relationship, and you see it played out sometimes specifically. I, I referenced before Micaiah. 
He's directing his words to the king. Um, sometimes you see it in the book of Isaiah, where there's a specific relationship between Isaiah and, and the king. One of the other things that you, you don't want to miss, the prophets don't show up by name real often in the narrative of Second Chronicles. We know they're there, but they're not mentioned. Jeremiah is the one grand exception. He gets mentioned, and that's very significant. But there's this, this statement laid in Second Chronicles. It's in chapter 36. Uh, yes, um, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and, notice this, on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking his messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So that's the chronicler's way of saying, even though I haven't mentioned it a lot during the course of this, there's another narrative that's been running through here, and it's these prophets that have come repeatedly, and you've rejected them, or, or the people, your, your ancestors rejected them. And that's why the, the, uh, the exile, but even in the context of that comment, the, the chronicler is reminding them, but still, God is a God who yeah. wants to it's dwell with people. It's a very sad couple oh of sentences there, isn't it? It is. It's very sad. I mean, it makes me want yeah. to weep. Yeah. And mm. both the beauty of God having compassion on his people yeah. and on his dwelling place. Yeah. But then it's just what a picture of us, because we're still this way, mm-hmm. aren't we? Mm-hmm. Despising his words. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a sad thing. So as the chronicler is writing this, He's not only speaking truth about God, but there is moral instruction here. One of okay. the most helpful verses that I find in, in understanding and then in teaching the Old Testament is Romans 15.4. Paul says there, whatever was written beforehand, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, including Second Chronicles, whatever was written beforehand was written for our instruction, and that's a very kind of moral instruction kind of word. But then he goes on and says, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. So in that one verse, he talks both about the moral instruction value of the scriptures and the encouragement kind of, I would even think of that in gospel terms, the the gospel encouragement of the Old Testament scriptures so that hope might be born in your heart. Well, those of us who are wanting to develop our skills of teaching with a sense of redemptive history, Mm -hmm. we get a little bit afraid of moral teaching because we don't want to have just moral lessons. I mean, that's probably how a lot of us, and I would include myself in that, grew mm-hmm. up in terms of understanding these right. stories, right. you know. Be like the good king and don't be like the bad king. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, be a part of the people of God and he'll make you win in the mm-hmm. wars and, you know, right. whatever. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit how we balance that sense yes. of s- sticking, making our purpose in teaching the same purpose yes. of the divine and human author. Right. But also... Uh, teaching in terms of how to live. Right. So think of right handling of God's word as a path. And it's not a razor's edge. It's not like, oh, it's impossible to walk this. There's a path here. You can do this. But there's a ditch on either side. One ditch is just kind of this moral moralism. 
It's reducing the Bible to, to moral principles, kind of like, like fables. Here's the moral of the story. That's one ditch that we want to avoid. On the other side, we can fall off on the ditch of kind of over-spiritualizing or, or even, dare I say it, over-gospelizing the text. Um, that's why I love that Romans 15.4. It's both moral instruction and encouragement along the lines of God's promises for hope. So what you want to do is preach both the moral force, but not independent of the redemptive purpose. That's why I love this phrase of uh, Paul in Romans, the obedience that comes from faith. So I want to preach this to to people or teach this to people uh, in such a way that they see God, they see God's faithfulness, they see the promises of God, and, oh, in light of that, what kind of moral implications, what kind of... So there is moral force to these passages, well, no question. Well, give me an example of teaching through Second Chronicles. What would be a couple ways you would bring in a couple of those moral mm. imperatives, in a sense, or learning from the example? Yeah. I think about Micaiah and how do you resist peer pressure? It's because you believe God. You believe what God has said. So is there a moral force? Yes, resist peer pressure. Don't cave in, even if you're one against 700. But the reason is not, hey, resist peer pressure because that's what godly people do. It's resist, you're enabled to resist peer pressure because you are now trusting in the promises of God. That's what helps me to stand in this situation. I believe something bigger than this situation. So that's one example. Um, or the, I keep referencing this story, the, the, you know, the protection of Joash. How do you do that at the risk of your own, possible, the risk of your own life? You know, how do you do things that are hard in the face of opposition? Well, it's because you, you trust in something bigger than the current situation. And so sometimes you're going to have to face persecution, suffering, opposition. Um, and yeah, stand up. Don't give in. I would imagine that, or tell me if this is true, that Second Chronicles, would there be some overlap of the time when it was written and some of the latter psalms that are mm-hmm. were written after mm-hmm. the exile mm-hmm. and they're at the end mm-hmm. where they're saying, really crying out to God mm-hmm. to come as mm-hmm. king. Mm-hmm. There's um, mm-hmm. Here we have... 500 years later, they don't have a king on the throne, Mm -hmm. and the chronicler is uh, reminding them of this history of these failed kings, but reassuring them in the sense that he's going to be faithful to his promise. And I just think about some of those psalms. I just wonder there might almost be a way we can bring some of those into Mm -hmm. our teaching of Mm -hmm. Second Chronicles, Mm -hmm. because it's almost the heart cry response to this teaching, almost as if the psalmists are providing us with a language to say, God, do all of you've promised, send your king. Yes, that's, that's very good. What you're doing is encouraging a way of reading the Bible so that whether it's reading the Psalms of David while you're coursing through the history of David or whether you're reading these Psalms, these post-exilic Psalms, while you're reading post-exilic material or material that was written into the post-exilic period, that's a good reading strategy. It's allowing Scripture to speak to Scripture. It's this cross-fertilization. And so for a teacher of this, yeah, one of the things they might want to be doing 
is finding the other places in Scripture that give you historical background, Ezra and Nehemiah, spiritual background, the prophets, um, now a more uh, poetic kind of expression of response to the particular heart of the people. Read those psalms. And not that you're going to bring all of those things in every time you teach, but it will certainly fill out your understanding and might be a point of reference to help someone treasure that psalm a little bit more. So that the goal of our teaching would be to lead to worship. Yes. Yes. What a worthy goal. Yes. I think most of my life I didn't see that as a worthy goal. It was so much about understanding. And I still want understanding. But the thing is, understanding is to serve something else. And that is worship. Yes. So you don't bypass the mind, but you don't end with the mind. You go through the mind and I know these categories are somewhat limiting, but you go through the mind to the heart, to the to the center of human being. Yeah. yeah. When I think about Second Chronicles, I think probably the only part of Second Chronicles that most of us will have ever heard <laughs> yeah, yeah. talked about. Let me guess. Let yeah. me guess. Yeah. Well, you, what do you think it well, is? Well, I'm guessing, you know, the... the Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, exactly. who are called by my name, will humble themselves, and you yes. know, so yeah. So what do what do we do with that? Yeah. What did you do with that? Yeah, isn't that interesting? How can how can teaching through the book of Second Chronicles help us write, right. correct, and Good. provide an appropriate correction to how that passage usually gets taught? And describe yeah. for us how it gets taught wrongly, and then show right. us what's right. Yeah, and it's not just that passage, but it can be an approach to to Old Testament history. All of a sudden, this becomes our history, and particularly, I think, as a nation. You know, we're not the only ones who have misappropriated Scripture. But um, but I I do think that there's been a history of interpretation in America, particularly that, that says, you know, we can, one-to-one correspondence, we can apply this. So in our moral kind of decline as a nation, we stand up and say, you know, if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. United States of America. Well, no. The key to that is understanding who are my people, if my people. And remember we talked before about that being one of the themes, one of the great themes of Second Chronicles, the people of God. Who are the people of God? And it's the people with whom God has made covenant, who have entered into covenant with God. Um, and so that's the my people. And so, and, and regular, that, in fact, that ver- that's a wonderful verse. And it's one of the keys to helping you understand Second Chronicles because that verse ends up getting repeated if you pay attention. I think about one of the last times it gets repeated in, oh, it's in the middle of Josiah's reform. I want to say maybe in chapter 34 where the very language of that verse shows up saying Josiah did that. He humbled himself. And look what God did. He gave the land refreshment for all of these years. He healed their land. So not only is it a key to seeing how God acts with his people there, but it, it's, it is a statement about how God is with his people. Let's just make sure to get the identifier right as to who my people are. Yeah. So having recently finished teaching through this mm-hmm. book, what did you hope they would come up to you and say either, now I get it, or right. here's what God has done in my heart and right. my life right. through Second Chronicles? Yeah. Well, you always want that that outcome, that product, to be something about God with reference to them. Who is God? What is God like? And how do I respond to him? 
that's what this is. This is a revelation by God of himself with the, the desired effect of us responding rightly to him. So in Second Chronicles, there's a wonderful theology, so much truth about God, God's sovereignty, God's mercy. But the main thing that this is speaking about is God's faithfulness. And so what do I want? How do I want people to respond? In hope. I think this was the point of the original writer. Don't lose hope, you post-exilic people who are facing sin, your own sin and disappointment and opposition. God is not given up on you, and I'm going to demonstrate that by writing you this history and showing you God is a faithful God. And so now we have the privilege in our teaching to do the same thing the chronicler was doing for our people, showing them the faithfulness of God and reminding them this is what God is like. So put your hope in God. Um, that's what I, I, the best thing if someone were to come up after teaching this would be to say simply, and I don't want to be simplistic, but to say, I trust God. I trust God. I've seen, you've shown me God is a faithful God to his people. And that gives me hope because there's still promises that God has made to us that haven't been We're fulfilled yet. We're still longing for our exactly. King to come exactly. in a fresh new way, exactly. aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And this book gives us hope that once again, He's going to come, mm -hmm. and once again, the wonderful thing about him coming is that he's going to dwell With, among yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, that's sweet. That's yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah. So how's it impacted you personally, teaching through this uh, book? I mean, yeah, going back to that, that relationship between the moral force of this, these stories are what captured my heart originally. I was reading through Second Chronicles on a retreat three or four years ago, and I found myself just so affected by these stories. And then now as a pastor thinking, I've got to preach this. I can't deprive the people of this. And so it was really the, I'm almost hesitant to say this, the, the effect of these stories on me. I wanted to live for God like these people did. And so that's what got me charged. And, and it still has that effect on me. I want to live for God like that. How, how can I live for God like that? Well, I'll tell you how. Grab hold of his faithfulness, put your hope in God, and watch what happens in your life. See the effects of, of uh, grasping the faithfulness of God, letting it translate into hope in your heart, and now liberating you from fear and worry and all of these other things. There aren't really very many resources on teaching Second Chronicles. I mean, you can think some books of the Bible, you can mm. find lots right. yeah. of help. Right, right. I don't know that, that there's that much help in Second Chronicles. I wonder if there have been some resources you have found yeah. that proved helpful to you that you would recommend to others. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it isn't. There's not uh, – <laughs> if I look on my bookshelf, there's not a lot there. But I would say there there were four – Books and I'll, and I'll just mention something about each of them that um, maybe were helpful. So R Ray Dillard has his commentary in the Word series. That's kind of more technical, both in terms of language and literary kinds of things. Um, Richard Pratt's commentary from the Mentor series, I really liked. It has an introductory section where he outlines methodically, 31-some themes of Second Chronicles. It's really, really helpful. So, And his commentary is helpful, too, but that opening section was particularly useful. Um, Andrew Hill wrote the commentary in the NIV application uh, series. 
And of course, that whole series is really excellent in in what they call bridging, you know, um, contemporary significance, that kind of thing. So that's the strength of that commentary. And then Michael Wilcox, is it Wilcox? Wilcox, I think it is, uh, in the, the the Bible Speaks Today series. That's a more popular level, a little bit more kind of accessible, um, not quite so technical, and gives you the larger kind of the big picture. So what I found is I liked the way those commentaries spoke to each other, and I was benefited in different ways. Um, if I had to choose, I'd say read the first part of Pratt and um, and then use Hill and Michael Wilcox's book. Yeah. Well, it's been so encouraging to talk about Second Chronicles with you because your passion mm. for the book comes mm-hmm. through. Mm. And that's always the key to teaching a book well, isn't it, to yeah. have a personal yeah. passion? I wonder yeah. if you'd close just by speaking directly mm. to those who are listening to this audio uh, they've taken on kind of an intimidating task yes. to teach the book of Second Chronicles yes. to modern-day right. people who think this book probably has nothing right. to say to them. Would you just speak a word of encouragement for the hard work right. of getting a handle on this book and preparing yeah. to teach it? Well, I'll try. <laughs> yeah. um, you, in fact, you kind of put your finger on it a moment ago, Nancy. Teach, I mean, ultimately, teaching is an act of love. Uh, It's a love for what you're teaching. It's a love for the people that you get to teach to. And God creates that. God puts that in our hearts. But you can cultivate it. You can nurture it. And so I think probably the the one thing I would really encourage those who are going to teach is read. Read 2 Chronicles. Read it over and over. And read it in a variety of ways. Sit down and read it at one sitting. Get the feel of the effect of this. And then read it king by king. And then read it vis-a-vis First and Second Kings, to kind of get the emphasis. So, in other words, spend, get out in front of your teaching and spend some time reading the book. Read Richard Pratt's introduction and then go read Second Chronicles again and see, oh, there's those themes. There's those themes. So let these stories have an effect on you. You will find that even though Second Chronicles sounds daunting, what, what is that? It sounds like not interested. It won't take long before your people, as you lead them into these wonderful stories, don't be afraid of them. Don't feel like you've got to get from the story some theological truth. Tell the story. God gave it to us in story form. Let the stories work their magic. You Open know? the word and let it exactly. speak. Exactly. And you'll find that people love these stories. Yeah. They're 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 unparalleled. Well thank you so much mm-hmm. for giving us insight into them. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition and sponsored by Crossway. Crossway's the publisher of a TGC booklet written by Mike Bullmore called The Gospel and Scripture. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts. Learn more about their gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.